Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Ruth Wishart. I'm very, very pleased to be chairing this event, not least because I dashed on first so that I could say that Tony Benn would be on my right. <laughs> so welcome all of you to this uh, Cornelian Asset Managers event, uh, which will give us an insight into the not-so-secret diaries of Tony Benn, aged 83 and a half. Um, reviewing this latest volume of, of Tony's diaries, recollections from between 2001 and 2007, one journalist wrote that there's a new kind of freedom in his thoughts and in his writing. And I hadn't noticed he'd ever been particularly fettered or gagged in the past. <laughs> this is the man that uh, Harold Wilson rather wearily said, immatured with age. <laughs> He's... Uh, he was, of course, as you know, a distinguished parliamentarian in an age when Parliament still mattered. A rebel, um, a rebel with many and varied causes. And you'll be unsurprised to learn that when he made his debut at Glastonbury, that uh, festival for substance-assisted youth, um, he, uh, he was the, the, the lead act in the left field. <laughs> now finally approaching his prime, he describes himself as an untrained classroom assistant to the nation. Tony Benn. Could we have the light so I could see the audience? You get to see the audience later. Oh, actually. Well, it's quite nice, it's quite nice to count the frowns and the smiles while you start it. Anyway. I don't want to put you off. All right, anyway. Well, uh, first of all, I'd say I love coming to the Edinburgh Book Festival. Uh, there's only one problem about it. You have to write a book to be invited. <laughs> well, I've written ten, but I thought this time I would uh, tell you about what I'm working on now in the hope you could help me. And I tell you what, I want to write a book called Letters to My Grandchildren. It's a wonderful title, but much harder to write about it. But the reason I want to do it is this. Uh, my interest in politics, which goes right back many, many years, is now focused on the future. I have ten grandchildren, and I worry about their future. And uh, older people tend to be critical of the young, but I find the young are very much more interesting than I perhaps thought I would years ago. First of all, they are much better uh, experienced. They, they know more than their parents and grandparents. When my laptop crashes, I ring up a grandchild. They come and press a couple of the buttons, and I'm back online. Uh, but you can't lecture them, and I wouldn't ever dream of doing that. But I ask myself, is there anything in my life that I've learned that might encourage them to tackle the enormous problems they face? Because this is the first generation, the younger generation, is the first generation in human history that has the capacity to destroy the human race with chemical, nuclear, and biological weapons. That has never been true before. Kill one or two people with a bow and arrow, a few more with a bomb or a, a gun. But with those weapons, you could destroy the human race. But it's also the first generation in human history that has the technology, the know-how, and the money, if you use it wisely, to solve the problems of the human race came back to me years ago when there was a space race during the Cold War between the Russians and the Americans as to who could get a, a man on the moon first. And the Russians put on the moon a fantastic space vehicle with caterpillar tracks crossing the surface of the moon. And I had a letter from a constituent, which I've kept, said, Dear Tony, I see the Russians have put a space vehicle on the moon. Is there any chance of a better bus service where I live? <laughs> well, 
You could laugh, but that was absolutely the right question. I mean, the Americans spend $400 million a day in Iraq killing people, and there are people starving in uh, Ethiopia and Haiti, and, and that is a, a, a criminal offense. And so this is the thing that interests me now. The technology changes, but the moral issues don't change. Uh, I was thinking of the technological change. My great-grandfather was born in 1821 in Irvine. When he was born, not a single railway train had ever traveled on the tracks. Uh, he didn't have the vote because only 2% all rich men had the vote. When my grandfather, 1863, was born in Irvine, uh, there were no uh, uh, telephones. When my mother was born in Paisley in 1897, uh, no heavier-than-air vehicle had ever left the surface of the earth before the Wright brothers, and she didn't have the vote. When I was born, there was no television. When my children were born, there was no internet. And so massive technical changes, but the moral issues remain the same. And war, I mean, you can dress it up the way you like, but war is about murder of men, women, and children. It is about rape and plunder and torture. That is what war is about. And to get our minds around the question of how you deal with war is the first really big question. And one of the things that worries me most about war is the use of religion to justify war. I was brought up by my mother, a very scholarly lady. We read the Old Testament in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek, and we studied the Bible every night. And she said to me, the story in the Bible is the story of the conflict between the kings who had power and the prophets who preached righteousness. She taught me to support the prophets against the kings. It's got me into a lot of trouble in my life, but the older I get, the more sense it makes, because all the great religions of the world taught the same moral principle. Treat other people as you want to be treated yourself. That's in the Hebrew. Uh, that's what Moses said, Jesus said, Muhammad said, Buddha said. And yet today, the kings who use religion for their own purposes give you the impression that your God teaches you to fight somebody who follows another God. I mean, Bush said God told him to go into Iraq. Well, I didn't know God had an office in the White House. <laughs> then Osama bin Laden says, if you don't accept my view of the Quran, you should be executed. Then you get the Zionists who said that Moses went up Mount Sinai and allocated Palestine to the Jews. I didn't know God was an estate agent, but they <laughs> present it in that way, and actually you have to get to the heart of it. The trade unions, an injury to one is an injury to all. It's exactly the same principle. So relating the danger of conflict, the danger of the weapons, with the moral teaching that is at our disposal is the first thing. Then the second question, a very urgent one now, is the environment. Now, I'm sure, as a view of the environmental crisis, you're all using your helicopters a lot less. I know I don't, I hardly use my helicopter at all now. <laughs> but is it really about that? I think the crisis in the world is a crisis of shortage. There is not enough food and oil and water for everybody. And the question is, who gets what there is? I was thinking if in a lifeboat there were three men after a shipwreck with one loaf of bread, there are only three ways to distribute the bread. You sell it so the rich man gobbles it up, you fight for it so the strong man gets it all, or you cut it up in bits and give everybody some. And I, you may think it's crazy, and if I was a candidate, I probably might find it difficult to say, but I'm talking about rationing now. Because during the war, I don't know if anyone remembers it, we rationed food. And I tell you one effect of rationing food, the height of working class children rose by two inches because they never had a proper diet before. 
And I met an old man the other day from Liverpool. He said, Tony, I'm 90. I'd never heard of butter till it was rationed. And you see, that, I think that rationing was one of the most moral decisions any government ever took. And the, the height of it was we never rationed bread during the war. You could always gobble a bit of bread if you were hungry. But when the Germans starved after the war, we rationed bread so the country we'd beaten didn't starve. Now, whew, just think that out. And so the environmental issue is, can't be just presented in the Duke of Edinburgh. No, what is it? No, it's Prince Charles. I forget which is which. Saying that <laughs> genetically modified food has caused the crisis. Mind you, if you are a member of the royal family, any genetic modification can threaten the throne. So I understand his concern. But <laughs> it isn't about, it's about seeing we what we have, we share. And the last question is democracy. And I think as I get older, democracy is the most revolutionary idea in the world because the world has always been run by rich and powerful people and everybody else had to stand in line. But when the vote was spread, the vote transferred power from the marketplace to the polling station, from the wallet to the ballot, and people could buy with their votes what they couldn't afford. And they bought the health service, the welfare state, and all the benefits we have. And I think Mrs. Thatcher and Reagan were so threatened by democracy, they decided to try and undermine the trade unions that had first campaigned for democracy, campaigns against local government, and so on. And we are now in the middle of a sort of counterattack on democracy. I mean, without being personal, um, they talk about Europe, and I'm a passionate European, but who elected Peter Mandelson? Nobody. Absolutely nobody elected him. And he's got more power than Gordon Brown as Prime Minister. And then who elected the World Trade Organization? Nobody. Who elected the IMF? Nobody. Who elects the multinational corporation? Nobody. So I think the battle for democracy will have to go on all over again. Now, uh, those are my thoughts that I think might or might not be interesting to my grandchildren, but I have to say this as a sort of foreword. The older, I've made every mistake in the book, and they're all in the diary. I do recommend a diary, actually. <laughs> you, well, you get three bites at your experience. When it happens, then that night when you're tired, you put it down, and then when you read it later and realize you were wrong, that's the great benefit of a diary. But uh, it's your experience that really does it. And I tell you something else, I, as I've got older, I realize the thing, most important lesson I've learned. I get up every morning at 7, I go to bed at midnight, I learn something. And then it occurred to me one day that 2 billion people in the world get up every morning at 7 and learn something. So every night when I go to bed, I know less of what there is to be known than when I woke up that morning. And when I go to university graduations, I say, when you leave this university, you will be relatively more ignorant than when you came. And, but it is true. You can't stuff your mind with everything. Think about what you know and use it. And then the last point, because I mustn't go on, is how is progress made? It isn't really by people galloping on the stage in a white horse and saying, vote for me. Progress is made by two groups, the teachers who explain the world. I mean, a politician shines a torch and says, follow me. A, a, a teacher explodes a pyrotechnic into the sky. And that's what Moses did and Jesus and Mohammed. That's what Galileo did. That's what Marx did. That's what Darwin did. The teachers and the movements that make it come about. So the teachings and, and movements. And if you want to know how to improve the world, do it yourself with other people. Lao Tzu, the Chinese philosopher, was asked about leadership. And this is what he said, and it made a deep impression on my mind. He said, as to the best leaders, 
the people do not notice their existence. The next best they honor and praise, the next best they hate, the next best they fear. But, said Lao Tzu, when the best leader's work is done, the people say, we did it ourselves. And that's how we got the vote. The women got the vote, apartheid ended. All progress is made by people with confidence. And they try to keep us frightened, divided, demoralized. And actually, if we're none of those things, we have it within our power to build a world where my great, where my grandchildren's grandchildren, who will be my age in about 2,100, they'll have a world to live in. And if we don't, we might all be seeing the end of our civilization. Thank you very much indeed for listening. I know better than to take up too much of the audience's time because they're dying to ask you questions, but just a couple of quick things. Um, one of the joys of the internet uh, currently are a number of websites devoted to Tony Benn, and I was wandering along one of them this morning, and uh, I came across a quote from Aldous Huxley, which was, so long as men worship Caesars and Napoleons, they will duly rise and make them miserable. So I wondered if you might like to say who you thought were today's Caesars and today's Napoleons. Well, it is interesting. You see, the great moral leaders of my lifetime have been Gandhi, whom I met when I was six, Mandela, and Tutu. And of all the three of them, I mean, it's difficult to compare them, but Tutu, with his truth and reconciliation, is, I think, the most important thing, because these war crimes tribunals, you catch Saddam and hang him. Now, supposing Mandela had wanted the clerk and... Uh, to be hanged after the end of apartheid. There had been bloodshed from that moment to this. And I think truth and reconciliation is the way forward because everybody makes mistakes. Anyway, I'm responsible for the war. I mean, I voted Labour in 2005. As a MP, I voted for the defence budget. I didn't always, usually against, but sometimes I did, and that fed for the war. And I think war crimes tribunals divert this, the responsibility from us to the whoever ever happens to be there. And I think one of the most moving things, I can hardly say it without bursting into tears, is what Bobby Sands said when he was in the Mays prison. You know, he died on a hunger strike. He said, our revenge, said Bobby Sands, would be the laughter of our children. All he wanted was his children should be able to laugh. I'm sorry, but that moves me more than I can say. All we want is our children to be able to laugh. I tell you, Tony, while you have a wee mop-up over there, <laughs> we'll put the lights up and let them... I'm afraid of a bit. I'm a tearful man. That's my problem. I think you should always be suspicious of men who can't weep. Let's have some questions from the audience. Yes, there. Thank you. I'm a bit deaf, so you're going to tell me. You shout and then I'll shout, okay? <laughs> Thank you. Would it not be useful to suggest to your grandchildren that there is an impossible dilemma? Firstly, that the human species is innately aggressive and war will continue. And perhaps the world is not faced with shortages, but with excesses, excesses of people. Did you get well, that? war is really, uh, has a pattern, doesn't it? It's about strong people trying to get what they want from weak people. Now, if you take crime, 
somebody uh, wants drugs, so he robs somebody, pinches their wallet and buys his drugs. But if you look at it internationally, imperialism is about powerful countries seizing what they need from less powerful countries. The best website, and I recommend it to you, is called WWW Maps of War. And if you read it, it's the history of the Middle East over the last 5,000 years, and it takes 90 seconds to watch. And all it is is the map of the Middle East, and you see the empires coming and going. And uh, Bush is, after all, an imperialist. He wants the oil. So he goes into Iraq. Now he's cooking up an argument about Iran. And uh, oil is a factor in Georgia. Oil was a factor in the Falklands, because they thought there was a lot of oil around the Falklands. In Scotland, war uh, oil. You know, that was an argument that played into the national movement. And so, somehow, you, the democratic balance is the best way of controlling that abuse. But you're quite right, if you want to be a pessimist, you can end it uh, yourself. You can go to Switzerland and go to, what's that place, Dignitas, and they kill you. I read about a man who booked to go there and cancelled because he was afraid of flying. I was a wonderful <laughs> What about the second half of that question, Tony, that the, the problem wasn't just shortages, it was, it was our, all of our excesses? Well, it's true. I mean, excesses, of course, the, the wealthy get more than they should and they waste it, don't they? That's the case for the redistribution of income. I, I said, you know, talking about rationing of food or oil, but I mean, fair tax systems would deal with that. It is to be outrageous that public service workers should be told at the moment to cut their standard of living because the oil price has gone up and that the guys in the city of London living on these massive bonuses have never been touched by it at all. And I think, uh, I think that's an issue. I used to say that at elections and I never found it was very unpopular because the number of uh, fat cats in my constituency who ever voted for me were quite small. questions. Yes, somebody. Thank you. Uh, just as a quick preamble, I, I find it quite ironic that this event is sponsored by an asset management company, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, by a management company? An asset, asset management, management company. company. Ah, Jeez, I'll have a word. <laughs> um, I'm an English teacher, and so I, I appreciate your words about teachers. Um, I suppose my question or my point is teachers and the movements, as you called them, to succeed ultimately do need political representation. I kind of tried to make this point to Robert Peston the other day, the BBC business editor, who said, you know, he's astonished that the politicians don't tax the super rich. They don't tax them at all. 40% would be nice, is what he was arguing. Um, not, not a super tax, but... Um, they don't do it, he said, because they're scared of us. If somehow they tax the super rich, we'll think that they're heading back to dreadful old labor days and so on. I try to argue that that wasn't the case. What they're scared of is the super rich not paying them and their political parties any money anymore. And the system's so corrupt now that we're voting less and less. And we're voting less and less because there really is no choice between these three main parties. And your unless, unless Labour moves leftwards or unless there, are, there is a party to represent working people, surely nothing will change. Uh, just your thoughts on that. Well, there are a lot of issues raised. First of all, the question of, uh, uh, of uh, buying parties. I've got an old friend who was the governor, Jack Gilligan, governor of Ohio, my wife's home state. And he said, you'll never have democracy in America, Tony, 
while big business buys both parties and expects a payoff, whichever one wins. That is absolutely true, and it's happening here. Uh, and uh, you see, the other thing is that the world structure, which is around capital, that's what globalization is, about capitalism on a global scale, it has denied us the right to do anything. And so, in effect, in all parliamentary democracies, you're getting a one-party state, uh, Schroeder and Merkel, Berlusconi and uh, Prodi, um, Blair and Cameron. I always thought that uh, Cameron might appear in Blair's last reshuffle. <laughs> and if Cameron wins, I wouldn't be surprised if Blair didn't feature in it. And uh, Bush and Kerry. And so the sense that we were one-party state is one of the reasons why people think it's not worthwhile. So you're quite right. You say, go back to what we're supposed to be about, representing people. And uh, if you represent people, then you're fighting against the war, you're arguing against the war, against taxing pensioners, uh, putting pensioners on a means test, uh, making students pay a, back a loan, and all the attack on civil liberties. And concentrate on the issues, and you can unite people. And I think that's what will have to happen if democracy in Britain is to recover. You said, uh, Tony, at the end of these diaries, which finished in, in 2007, you were sounding really quite cheery about um, uh, Mr Blair going and Mr Brown arriving. Are you still cheery? Well, I don't want to be personal about it, but I did take, I did take the view that Blair uh, was right. He said, when he became leader of the Labour Party, he said, a new political party. Uh, and I've never been a member of it. Mind you, the Labour Party has never been a socialist party. It's always had socialists in it, just as there are some Christians in the churches. Everybody knows that. <laughs> in exact parallel. And I'm a socialist in the Labour Party. Uh, but now, you see, the collapse of what's called New Labour is actually also the final death of Thatcherism, because Thatcher was the ideology that went into New Labour. So uh, we're in a very interesting period. For the first time in my life, the public are to the left of what is called a Labour government. I find that's why I don't feel lonely. Hope I don't. <laughs> but you also see that um, you know that there are too many socialist parties and not enough socialists. Oh gosh! Well, I get letters from people quite often now saying, "Dear Tony, just to let you know, I've torn up my Labour Party card." So I say, well, "Thanks so much. I'll send you a list of who you can join. You can join the Socialist Party, the Socialist Labour Party, the Socialist Workers' Party, the Socialist Party Great Britain. You could join." Uh, um, Scottish Socialist Party, although that's now, of course, uh, Solidarity, I think, and what's the other one called? So then you could join Respect or Respect Renewal, because they split, or you could join the Communist Party of Britain or the Communist Party of Great Britain or the Communist Party of Great Britain, Marxist-Leninist. I said, you are very lucky, you've got a huge choice. Trouble is, there are too many Socialist Parties, not enough Socialists in the Labour Party. And I think sectarianism in... in ideology is as bad as sectarianism in religion, you know, Sunnis and Shiites and Christians and Protestants and all that. It's, it's, ridicu uh, it's ridiculous. We have to get together around the issues if we're to represent people. So I'm with you 100% on that. More questions? Yes, somebody in the, in the aisle there. Thank you. Mm. Tony, I was just wondering if you'd managed to find a home for your archive yet. <laughs> Gosh, well, don't start on that, because I have kept everything all my life. Everything. If you file your waste paper basket for 83 years, you build a... F <laughs> i give you an example. Uh, somebody came from the Imperial War Museum the other day to interview me about peace. And I mentioned that when I was 11, I wrote an article about disarmament, saying it would be more money for medicine, for 
people lower taxes. And she asked me to find it. So at the weekend, I was with, in, in the archives. And with 10 seconds, there it was. And I've still got the, the literature I pushed through the letterboxes in the 1935 election, one of which was brilliant. And I used it in the miners' strike, issued by the Miners' Federation of Britain. Do you know, in the nine years before the 35 election, 1,200,000 miners were injured and 7,800 miners were killed in the pits. That was 1935. So when the miners' strike came out, I pulled that out, reproduced it, and circulated it. This is what it was like under private ownership and a Tory government. And I find it very useful, but the trouble is it takes up so much space. It's in <laughs> endless number of garages. Uh, and when I die, I mean, the great... <laughs> I mean, some of my son will have to take responsibility. Because I remember what my grandmother, who was a Paisley woman from Paisley, said to me when I, I was very young and I was by her bedside and I thought she was going to die. And she said something to me I've never forgotten. She said, the great thing about your last journey is you don't have to pack. <laughs> <laughs> and I will say that at funerals. So I don't have to pack my archives. <laughs> I have to say, ladies and gentlemen, that Tony's daughter, Melissa, is in the audience, and I can hear her heart sinking from here. <laughs> More questions, please. Yes, lady in the middle there. Thank you. Could you just wait? There's a mic coming. Just two seconds. We'll be right with you. Thanks very much. Thank you. Tony, I'd like to ask you your thoughts on the forthcoming election in America, Obama and McCain, and the implications for Britain. Well, I've supported Obama uh, on a number of grounds, you know, anybody but Bush, and McCain is... Uh, uh, but also, what was interesting about Obama, he brought hope in. And uh, you see, coming back to the earlier question about pessimism and so on, hope is the fuel of progress, and fear and pessimism is a prison into which you put yourself. And so what Obama did was raise hope, and uh, what interested me was the rise in the turnout in the Democratic primaries. Uh, on the other hand, he's made some speeches that worry me a bit. He said Jerusalem has got to be an undivided capital in Israel. Well, you can't abolish the Palestinian right. And he said one or two other things. And when he gets there, he'll have the problems anyone would have. If you face all the hard-faced men who've been running, new, you know, the neoconservatives, you've got to deal with them. But I think the excitement to me about Obama is that he has awakened in the United States a sense that Bush didn't represent them, and therefore the pressure on him, which he will need to do what he wants, will be greater. But don't look, as I said, for someone to gallop on the stage in a white horse. The American people have got to do it. I love America, and I've never identified America with Bush at all. I think Bush is an aberration. And so we must keep confidence and then encourage them and help them, because they'll need a bit of support as well. Do you think, Tony, that even the election of a man, if he wins, of who's... Uh, whose uh, hinterland is half Kenyan, even just that would send a powerful signal out to many places in the world? What, having a half-black America? Yeah. Uh, um, uh, yes. Well, after Hillary Clinton made a passionate appeal for women, I wondered whether Oprah Winfrey wouldn't have solved the problem <laughs> a, bla a black woman. But uh, it is interesting, isn't it, to have a, a, a... And when you think of it, Kennedy was the first Catholic president, and that was considered an innovation. And to have... Uh, uh, Barack Obama there really would be very exciting. Thank you. More questions. Yes. Uh, one, two, and three there. First in the, in the, in the front here. Thank you. Um, in one volume of your diaries, I seem to remember you saying that when you were Minister of Energy, 
uh, in Whitehall, you turned the map of Great Britain upside down on the wall behind your desk in order to emphasize the importance of Scotland after the discovery of oil. And I'm really wondering if you could say something about how you will modify your map of Great Britain when, uh, uh, or if and when Scotland becomes independent. Well, on the independence, the big issue is entirely for Scotland to decide. I mean, this idea the English have any right in the matter. If you vote for total independence, you'll have your navy and your army and your bases and your frontier, and that's for you. It would split me down the middle because I'm half Scots and half English, and when I cross the border, my heart beats faster, but it's entirely for Scotland. I think the issue, tell me I may be wrong, is about more power. Power is too centralised. I mentioned the world, but it's also too centralised in Britain. And I think that uh, having a, a, a Scottish Prime Minister, which is what Alex Hammond is, is just a move in that direction. And I think uh, I would like to see a, an English Parliament and then a small federal elected Senate which dealt with reserved matters, you know, military and defence and all that. And if you did that, then there would be a spread of, of the power. And you see, uh, Tamdale's West Lothian question was a good one. Why should English people have laws made by Scottish MPs that don't apply in their own constituency? That's a good point. And I've, I've published a new constitution for Britain, uh, which would uh, called a, a Commonwealth of Britain, a common sense, and which should have a Scottish and English and, and a Welsh Parliament. The Irish will go off in the end, won't they? I mean, now Ian Paisley and... and uh, and Jerry Adams are having a love-in. I can't think the division in, in, in Ireland will remain very long. And we'll work together. But the idea of absolute national independence, I would thought, was not very sensible. And I don't know, you'll tell me, whether that's really what most people in Scotland want. They want more power to decide their own lives, which is what democracy is about. And in the middle there, I think, was the next one. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've talked about hope. You've talked about war, and you've talked about your grandchildren. Do you think there is any chance that we could create a Great Britain for our grandchildren to inherit that will be without nuclear weapons? Could we, without nuclear weapons? Yeah. Well, you see, nuclear weapons, you look at it many ways. First of all, we don't need them. I mean, America with nuclear weapons can't even win in Iraq. They're useless. We can't afford them. And I tell you one thing that will interest you this. I went to the Defence Academy at Shrivenham the other day, you know, headed by an admiral. I was terrified. But, of course, the army are absolutely opposed to nuclear weapons because it's the Navy going around the world with these useless weapons when what they need is body armour and helicopters. And so don't think the army's in favour of them. And we don't have them anyway because Bush lends them to us. And if Brown pressed the button, they'd go up and come down again unless Bush switched on the satellite system. <laughs> so, I mean, it's absolutely crazy. And I think, and, and the amount, we've just spent three billion quid last week, we were told, re-equipping our nuclear warheads. Well, we bought them from America, of course. Well, wouldn't that money be better spent on pensioners or students or... You know, I mean, it's common sense. I, I, the older I get, the more I may be immaturing with age, but as I get more immature, I do find the simplicities sometimes register with people. I mean, it didn't help us anyway to have nuclear weapons. And, of course, uh, Iran is now not allowed to have nuclear power, but when I was energy secretary, I was sent to see the Shah in Tehran in 1976, and what was American policy? To persuade Iran to adopt nuclear power. I'm telling you, it's crazy. 
So, uh, and we want, we say we should have nuclear weapons, the Americans have, uh, if all right, why shouldn't anyone have them? And I think Bush is encouraging the spread of nuclear weapons, because if you look at it one way, if Iran now had nuclear weapons, Bush wouldn't be threatening them, would he? So Bush is having the exact opposite effect of what he says. I don't find that a difficult argument to put, particularly now I know the military on my side. <laughs> Somebody up the back was next. Hi, Tony. Um, you've talked about movements and the power that movements have. Um, Gordon Brown and Alistair Darling, around the time that I was born, were involved in a lot of movements, uh, Trident being one of them. Why is it that, that when they get into power, they seem to move towards the right? And it's contrary to your life experience that you've talked about when you say you seem to move towards the left and that your family's general experience has been moving towards the left as well. Well, I can't explain that, and I don't want to make it personal. I mean, it is true when you get in office, you find there are factors and problems and powers you didn't either know about, or even if you did, you didn't know quite to do with them. But you see, I was in quite a right-wing government. And what I did was to put my case in the cabinet. For example, we made huge cuts in public expenditure in 76, and I voted against it in the cabinet, put forward an alternative. But the cabinet didn't accept my view, so I had to say, well, that's the policy of the government. And uh, uh, so long as you never say what you don't believe in order to get on, I think making mistakes is perfectly explicable. Life is full of mistakes. And so, I, I, I mean, I disagree with what they're saying now. And people do shift a bit from left to right. I'm in a funny family. You see, we've all shifted from right to left. When I was born, my father was a liberal MP for Leith. And when I was a year old, I persuaded him to join the Labour Party. <laughs> and and when, when I was elected to Parliament, I was in a government, I was in supporting a Labour government my dad thought was very right-wing. And so I think there are different ways of learning. I've, I have become more left-wing as I got older because I realised, you know, Thatcher out, and what's the result? You get Blair in, and, you, and it's a bit more than just Thatcher, Thatcher out. You've got to think about how to change things, and it can be done. But it's got to be bottom-up, not top-down. Well, quite curious, Tony, in a way, because you have a son who was a, a cabinet minister in, in Mr. Blair's government, and you had a daughter-in-law uh, from a different uh, branch of the family. You had a daughter-in-law who was working at Number 10. Did that cause any difficulty with Sunday family meals? No, not really. I'm, I mean, my uh, son, when he was elected to Parliament, said he was a Ben, but not a Benite, which is exactly my position. I've never been a Benite. I don't know who they are. <laughs> I just... And uh, I do also know when I see my son at work, because after all, in DEFRA, every flood is his responsibility. Every foot and mouth is his responsibility. Every Asian flu. And all these problems pour in. And I remember as a minister, Upper Clyde shipbuilders and all the problems that, that we had, Leyland collapse and all the shipbuilding industry and all that. So I'm sympathetic with ministers. They have a job. But uh, you shouldn't try, if possible, not make these things personal. And I've never tried never to do that. Thank you. This point about nuclear weapons is one of the reasons why Scotland needs real independence, in other words, control not only of internal matters, but foreign policy and defence policy. The majority of people in Scotland are opposed to nuclear weapons, although we have them on the Clyde, close to our nearest, largest centre of the population. But British governments are traditionally so addicted to 
trying to cling to the myth that they're a great power, and for that reason, as a kind of entrance ticket to a permanent seat in the Security Council, they cling to these useless and dangerous and expensive nuclear weapons. That's one of the main reasons why we want to get rid of English, British control of our foreign policy and defence policy. Well, that's an interesting argument. Uh, you have a Scottish Prime Minister, Mr. Brown, who was, a, was, I suppose, he against nuclear weapons? I don't know. Was he originally? I don't know. Maybe. Uh, and now you want to break on that issue. I must say, I would have thought that you would have been less secure with nuclear weapons in England, but not in Scotland, because nuclear weapons have a way of having influence beyond uh, the frontiers. They don't stop at frontiers, nuclear radiation. So I would have thought a big campaign against nuclear weapons that was done, not just England and Scotland, Scotland and England, but also in Europe, would be the best way forward. And I tell you another interesting thing. When I went to the Defence Academy at Shrivenham, I asked them a question. About 70 officers, they were all colonels, very, very senior. At least they seemed to me very senior when I was an aircraft in second class. But I said to them, how many of you here believe that it was the presence of nuclear weapons that discouraged the Russians from invading the West? And only two of the 71 believed it. So it's a myth. And I, I would I no hesitation in getting them. So if you uh, believe that view and that people believe that view in Britain, I think an international campaign would be successful. You'd have a job getting rid of them all because there's so many of them are based, aren't they, here? We don't want them back oh. from Scotland. Is it another, one? <laughs> another one right here. Anybody else want to queue? Yes, and then along there. Thank you. How are we doing for time? We're all right. Don't worry, I'll kick your ankles. As an MP, when you allowed a, a free vote, um, did you vote for yourself or your constituents? Or did you ever try to find out what your constituents wanted you to vote, how they wanted to vote? For instance, on hanging. No, no. Yes, how do you vote when there's a free vote? Mind you, I voted according to my conscience in opposition uh, without a free vote. And I would say to the whips, I would say to Donald Dewey and his chief whip, Donald, I can't support the government on this, on weapons or whatever it was. Uh, he'd me to come and see you. And he'd say, no, I understand your position. He was always very nice to me. But you see, it's quite a complex question because in order to sit in Parliament, you have to take an oath of allegiance to the Queen. Every MP has to say, I swear by Almighty God that I will bear faithful and true allegiance to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, her heirs and successors, according to law. Now, my allegiance was not to the Queen. It was to my constituents, to my colleagues, and to my conscience. So in order to sit in Parliament, I had to tell 17 lies under oath. I have to say that to you because it was, it's about that. Then when you come to an issue, uh, you have to represent the interests of your own area. But I did a meeting in Scotland once, it was a by-election here, I remember very well, and people came in with a coffin, white coats, and said, Ben is a murderer. That's because I wouldn't vote against abortion. And I said, look, if you want to punish women who have an abortion, don't vote for me. And if people said to me, I think we should hang people, I'd say, if you want to hang people, don't vote for me. I'm not going to hang anyone. And in a funny way, that had a credibility. And I think saying what you believe and sticking to it doesn't necessarily destroy your prospect of getting elected. But being an MP is a very interesting job. It's the only job where you have one employee and 60,000 employers. 
When I was in my constituency, everybody employed me. The bus driver, the street sweeper, the teacher, the home help, the policeman. I was free to say what I liked, and I did. They were free to get rid of me, which they once did, but therefore I had to listen to them. And it's that relationship that is so important. That's why I do believe democracy is such a revolutionary idea. Nobody in power really likes it. Hi, Tony. Um, do you think that the recent rejection of the Lisbon Treaty in Ireland shows how out of touch the EU is with the people? And do you have any hope that it can be changed for the better? About Ireland, about the referendum in Ireland. Oh, well, you see, it's very interesting, that. I went to, uh, uh, to Dublin and spoke in the campaigns. the first election I've won for years. <laughs> I'm supporting the no campaign. You see, I'm not anti-European. I'm born a European. I die a European. I'm, actually, I'm a citizen of the world, as you, we all are. But what we've set up there is the most nightmarish bureaucratic system. Barroso, who's the president of the commission, said, Europe is an empire, he said, without imperial. But that's what they think they've found a way of building a structure which will have its own army. That's what they want where the commission will be in charge and none of the commission are elected. And I was on the Council of Ministers for four years. I was president of the Energy Council. The only committee I've ever sat on where I couldn't even put in, as an elected minister, I couldn't put in a document. Only the commission could put in documents. You could say yes or no. And I think we should develop a Commonwealth of Europe. With, I'd like to see everybody in Europe, in Russia and everybody else, where you harmonise by the consent of your national parliaments. But what we're doing, I think the European objective, as it now is, is to suck away the democracy from member states and put it in the hands of these commissioners. We wouldn't accept this country to be governed by commissioners. Supposing Britain had the European system with commissioners, we wouldn't accept it for two minutes. So for me, it's a democratic issue, not a nationalist issue. And I think nationalism led to two world wars where 105 million people were killed, and I don't want that. On the other hand, I don't want to find I'm in a new empire run by people I don't control. So that's my position. I don't know what view yours is. And if you, even if Scotland were independent, I tell you, Brussels would have a greater control over an independent Scotland uh, than, it, uh, than London because uh, uh, Europe controls so many things we are doing now, quite wrongly, like splitting the post office. It's absolutely crazy to destroy the post office. And that's being done because Europe says we have to. So you've touched on a Commonwealth of Europe, including Russia. Tony, it might be useful to let the audience know what you think of the events of the last week vis-a-vis -vis Russia and Georgia. Well, it's in the Russian-Georgian thing is very, very interesting because it's not quite what it appears. Um, Georgia and the breakup of the uh, USSR into the Commonwealth of Independent States led to a number of things happening. First of all, enormous American pressure in all these velvet revolutions to get anti-Soviet or anti-Soviet yes, anti governments. And uh, uh, Georgia has been funded and supported by the United States. And then Georgia decided to have a go at South Ossetia, which wanted independence. And uh, so the Russians came in and stopped it. But then there's oil running through there too. And it's very, very complicated. Georgia wanted to join NATO. But I tell you this, if Georgia had been in NATO last week, NATO would have been at war with the Russia today. So you've got to be very, very careful about this. And I think that uh, I think the division of Europe uh, is a mistake. I would like to see, as I mentioned, a, a Commonwealth of Europe, including all the European countries, 
rather sort of mini version of the UN. And we've got to be very, very careful. And to hear Bush saying that he's against the use of force, I mean, I did really wonder <laughs> whether I was going off my nut. And then uh, Condoleezza Rice saves a breach of international law to attack a self-governing state. <laughs> Here, please, thank you. Uh, Mr. Ben, um, having just heard you talk a bit about Europe, I, I wonder if you Where think... are you? I can't see you. I'm oh, over yeah, here, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, I wonder if you think that NATO has actually passed its sell-by date. What purpose does it really serve, do you think? Well, NATO's interesting, isn't it? Um, first of all, I didn't realise the North Atlantic extended to Afghanistan. <laughs> I mean, what NATO is, it's the, it's the American version of the French Foreign Legion. That's what it is. We're just puppets of, of Washington, and they control us partly because of the fact that they have their bases, partly because of the fact they give us nuclear weapons and so on. And I'm not anti-American at all. I, I love the United States. But this idea that the United States could dictate the policy of Europe through its overwhelming power when I was last in the States, I said to them, you had a lot of trouble, as you know, with George III, King George III. And they nodded. And I said, no, we're, we're having a lot of trouble with George II. And they did. <laughs> give, me a give me a funny look. But no, <laughs> no I, I've always been in favor of a European security agreement involving people East and West. Be fine, I'm in favor of that. But it is, the Cold War, you see, is still going on, isn't it? And when Bush squares up to Putin or something, and it's, it's, uh, it's big power stuff, really, rather than ideologically based. And isn't it odd, you see, Osama bin Laden, for example, was funded by Bush's father to get the Russians out of, Af the Russians out of Afghanistan. I went to the Russian embassy. I led a protest against the Russian occupation of Afghanistan, and the ambassador said, comrade, he said, there are terrorists in Afghanistan. Who was he referring to? Osama bin Laden. Who was paying for him? The President of the United States. Oh, it's, it, I think the hypocrisy and double standard really sticks in my gut, gut gullet, I, whatever that means. But I just don't like that. I think we're told a lot of lies to push us along with an agenda that's never been fully described. We take it you do think NATO was passed at sale by date then? This one? We can we take it, you do think NATO has passed its sale by date then? Oh, I do, yes. No, 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 no. I've always been in favour of a European security. And that was Labour policy, you know. Labour policy up until a few years ago was the dissolution of NATO and the uh, Socialist Bloc, or whatever it was called, the Warsaw Pact, and the merging. That was Labour policy. And I think it makes a lot of sense. There's a lady over there with her hand up, yes. Uh, well, that one if you like, but there's also somebody here. Hello, um, I'm from Australia and I just wanted to ask you something uh, about the Labor Party generally because you said that um, we've all gone further right and we have in Australia as well. I mean, I'm rather ecstatic we did get rid of our conservative government that did some dreadful things over the last 11 years. Nevertheless, um, like in England, our Labor Party is so far right. Um, you said we shouldn't be pessimistic, we should be optimistic and do things, but what power do we have how on earth can we make the Labour Party do what, you know, they used to stand for what they should be doing rather than basically still being like Conservatives or supporting big business? 
Well, that, I think, is a very important question, because a lot of people feel this. But you see, the credit crunch is the 9-11 of the world economy. Nothing is the same again. It's presented in such a cosy way, like, a, would you rather have a Kit Kat or a credit crunch? Would you like <laughs> milk and sugar on your credit crunch at breakfast? Actually, what it is, is the collapse of the market system to meet our needs. We've been told by Thatcher and by Blair, don't get the state out, leave it to the market. The mar borrow and spend, borrow and spend. And we see the result now, people being repossessed. Can you imagine anything more horrific than being turned out of your home with your wife and family uh, because you've become unemployed and can't keep up the thing? And I think public opinion is shifting. You see, the danger of it, because I remember the 30s when I was very, very young, uh, uh, the danger of it is that when people get frightened, they swing to the right. I met, uh, when I was three, 80 years ago, I met a Labour MP. I didn't see him again for seven years. Next time I saw him, he was in Parliament Square in a black shirt, and it was Oswald Mosley, the leader of the factories. He'd been a Labour MP. And you see, when there's a crisis of this kind, what people do is to find a scapegoat. Hitler said it's the Jews and the communists. Now we're told it's all the troublemakers and so on. Uh, and people get power by frightening people uh, about what might happen to them. So there's the danger of a swing to the right. On the other hand, it was also the 30s that led to the welfare state. Because I was a pilot in the war and I went to South Africa to fly, learn to fly. And uh, war is very dangerous some of the time, but mainly it's boring. And all we did was talk. And uh, I remember somebody said, look, he said, in the 30s we had mass unemployment with the means test and fascism and realment. We don't have any unemployment when we're killing Germans. Why, if you can have full employment by killing Germans, can't you build hospitals, build schools, uh, recruit nurses? And that's how the welfare state came. It came out of the decision to apply the same commitment to peace needs that we had com committed to war needs. And I think those ideas are beginning to come back again. I mean, that's what I, that's what I do all the time. I just go around, encourage supporting people, encouraging them, trying to explain if they want me to, and giving a backing. And, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm all, and sometimes I get very depressed, but I cut that bit out of my diaries <laughs> because I think you have to keep hope alive. You see, the progress has been made historically because there have been two flames burning in the human heart always. The flame of anger against injustice and the flame of hope that you can build a better world. And my job is to go around fanning both flames as hard as I can. Yes, somebody just behind you there. Your hand up, thank you. Um, you haven't said anything about China, which is, of course, top of the news because of the Olympics. I was kind of felt like asking a question about sport, but I'm not really given to that. So I'd rather hear your comments about how you feel China will continue to influence developments in the world. Thank you. Well, China is, if it isn't already, it will within a year or two be the world's greatest power. Huge population, high skill, and so on. And of course, as the Olympics brought out, I thought very opening, interesting, they brought out the history of China. I mean, when we were painting ourselves with woad, uh, the Chinese uh, inventing things and developing a civilization. On the other hand, the Chinese empire was also very brutal. Because when I was in Baghdad seeing Saddam five years ago, they told me that uh, the Mongols had in, got into Baghdad in 1258. 
taken the books from the library and thrown them in the river Tigris. And the Tigris was black with the ink of the books and red with the blood of the Iraqis who defended them. So that's the Chinese imperial thing. On the other hand, we were an empire. And I, I, have you heard of the Opium Wars? We had Opium Wars with China. What people don't realize is we went to China because they wouldn't import opium. The Opium Wars with China were to force China to take opium. We were trying to sell them. And of course, we um, didn't support them in the 30s when the Japanese were there. Now China's coming out. And I think China will develop. Uh, uh, in a way. I saw a wonderful program the other day on television, all in Chinese, made in China, of a school in China that was electing its school monitors, a primary school. Absolutely brilliant film, because in this school there was a real election going on. The candidates, and one said, I'm fair as a monitor, and they said, no, you're not. And there was a vote. And I thought, if you can, China will begin discussing how to elect their class monitors. It won't be long before they decide how to campaign for democracy. So I'm an optimist, but all empires are, are very frightening, you know. There's two over here. Yes, thank you very much. Hey, um, I was just wondering what you think about the way parties are presenting themselves today. Because in Scotland, people are voting SNP, but they don't support independence. And then people are voting Conservative because Labour are a bit too right-wing. Just <laughs> wondered what you thought about that. Um, two things, um, uh, the way parties present themselves, people vote SNP who may not support independence and people vote Conservative because they find the Labour Party too right-wing. Well, there are very complex elements in voting, aren't there? Um, people vote tactically. I mean, I know people who have been Labour voters all their lives, but they vote Liberal if they think that's the best way of defeating the Conservative. You know, so it doesn't mean everyone of one party takes the same view. But I presume there must be people in Scotland uh, who favour uh, the independence movement but really don't want a complete division and would like more power. And I would have thought that was quite a sensible thing to do. But it's not for me to say what you should do. Uh, and I'm very, very clear about this. If you decide to vote for independence, Scotland will be independent. So it's something you've got to work out for yourselves. I think and the question was really concerned about how parties were presenting themselves because it was causing a certain amount of confusion in terms of the traditional voting patterns. Yes, well, I, I, what, since I left Parliament, I campaign, campaign entirely on the, on the issues. I'm campaigning on peace and pensioners and students and civil liberties and trade union rights and so on. If you do that, you get people from all parties in. It's quite interesting, you see. Stop the war movement, their conservatives came and spoke and supported us. And so I think... Uh, the future of politics lies in building up the campaigns that are needed. If you do that, then you represent people through the campaigns. And on polling day, you vote for the less, lesser of the two evils, if you like. Somebody just behind you. Thank you. Hi, Mr. Ben. I had a question about the, um, the environment that your grandchildren are going to live in in the future. Um, and I'm specifically talking about um, climate change. And uh, what I'm seeing in environmental circles and international circles is that a lot of policies um, against emitting carbon dioxide and looking at how that could be, um, the amount of carbon dioxide can be, that people, the countries emit, can be split between countries and how we can work out an equal distribution. Um, and a lot of Malthusian arguments about population growth in countries such as China that we've just discussed. Um, I was wondering if you see a way forward, if there is actually a way forward um, to try and find a way to distribute the amount of carbon dioxide that we all emit, or whether you, um, do you actually feel there's hope 
in, in that particular discussion? Well, it is a very big problem. I mentioned what I think is a central question is distribution. I'm very uneasy about carbon trading. Can a rich man buy from a poor man the right to pollute the climate? I mean, that's uh, rationing by the purse. Secondly, I think biofuels, taking land that is, could uh, be used to grow food to produce biofuels so people with their gas-guzzling cars can drive them. That's absolutely wrong. And uh, so there are a lot of aspects of this I'm very, very uneasy about. And also, you know, if we say to China, don't build coal-fired power stations, which they are now building in quite a bit, are we to say to them, we've developed, but you mustn't develop? So, you know, there are a lot of factors, and there's something rather arrogant, I think, about some of the ways the environmentalists present their argument. I, it, it makes me a bit uneasy. And some of them have now gone out, come out in favour of nuclear power. Well, I can tell you, having been responsible for nuclear power for years, it's a very dangerous thing to do indeed. And I discovered after I left office, only after I left office, that while I was the minister, the plutonium from our civil power stations, which we've been boasting about, was sent to America for their weapons program. So every civil power station in Britain was a bomb factory for the Pentagon. And I was never told as the minister. So be very careful. And George Monbiot has now come out for nuclear <coughs> power. And, and I, I don't agree with it. I think we've got to be more critical. The environmental argument is sort of tending to get through on the nod without anyone ever asking anything about it. And we should ask because they are urging very big political decisions on us. And we mustn't just be kidded if, oh, you mentioned the environment and it, everything goes ahead without discussion. Ladies and gentlemen, I know there's lots more questions, and I apologise to the lady on the, on the left there, but we are pretty well out of time now, and we need to allow some time um, for Tony to get to the signing tent, and that will take some time because his new invention of the seated rucksack <laughs> with, from which he refuses to be parted is actually quite heavy. So if you'd give us a little time um, to get round to the signing tent, of course you just keep turning left to get to the signing tent. Um, <laughs> This new volume of the diaries from 2000 and, um, 2001 to 2007 uh, is a cracking read. It really is a cracking read. More time for politics. I recommend it to you. Please will you join me in thanking the National Institution. That's Tony Benn. Thank you, Ruth. That was lovely. <laughs>